Amen. Beautiful sounds, praising our Father in heaven. If you are a kid, two years old to second grade, now it's time for you to make that decision. That decision you make each week. Are you going to stay in here with us and listen to this long old guy, this old guy give a sermon? <laughs> or are you going to go with Micheline, who tells great stories for, at Children's Church? What's your choice? All right, here we go. Beautiful, beautiful kids. Welcome again to the Skillman Church of Christ. It's so good to see each and every one of you here today. I do want to begin this sermon just by taking a pause and just realizing, reminding us of this miracle that we have right now. It's a miracle that you are here. It's a miracle that your heart is beating. It's a miracle that your heart is pumping blood through your body. It's allowing your brain to think thoughts that you got here this morning somehow, some way. And I think sometimes we live life in such a fast-paced way, a fast-paced manner, that we forget that this whole thing is a miracle. It is an absolute miracle. I mean, look to the person to the left and to the right. I mean, look at him. It's a human being. It's a human being next to you. Can you believe that? I mean, this is a miracle. And here and now, this is why we're here, to celebrate this miracle, that God is the reason behind this whole thing. He is, this is the energy, the force that's propelling the universe forward, that's allowing the planet to spin, that's holding the sun, moon, and stars together. I mean, this is amazing, and we don't even talk about it. This has nothing to do with the sermon. <laughs> I was just compelled to just remind ourselves at this amazing miracle. It's an absolute joy that we can be here together, worship together, sing songs together, watch a whole bunch of kids walk out together. It's amazing that we are here. And we have so much to be thankful for. I mean, just before, uh, before this, Troy Gibson told me that Donovert in Zimbabwe... Thanks, thanks to the donations here at this church, Donovert in Zimbabwe was able to get his house completely powered by solar energy and allow his family and the church there to function because, as you guys know, the situation in Zimbabwe there is, is very, very difficult. And energy is not a luxury, it's not a, a given there in Zimbabwe. So that's a tremendous thing to be thankful for that this church was a part of. Another thing to be thankful for is what, school, school starting? <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> hey, if you have your first day of school tomorrow as a teacher, will you raise your hand? Come on now, stand up. All right, why don't you guys stand up real quick if you're a teacher. Or if you haven't, if you've been teaching already. Addie, did you teach last week? Oh my goodness. Now, these are the true heroes right here, the teachers and administrators, because uh, I have four kids, and I know how difficult it is sometimes, uh, but it's an amazing beginning. So we have so much to be thankful for today, and so today's, for this, today's sermon, I thought what we would do is we would just go in the Bible, and we would read a specific prayer that Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians. And you know what? We're just going to let the scriptures talk today, all right? It's going to be less, hopefully less about me my thoughts, my ideas, and we're going to let Scripture speak to us today, a prayer, a prayer as these beginnings start, as we begin things anew, as school begins, as we have jobs that are, that are kicking up or, or new, new seasons in our life. This is a prayer. This is also a prayer for the Skillman Church, for this church family and, and really any church family. So if you have your Bibles today, 
Could you turn to Ephesians chapter 3? Ephesians chapter 3. And you know, uh, we're not going to put the scriptures there on the PowerPoint today because we want you guys to, to get your Bibles out, to touch the pages, to feel... The, the, in, or your iPhone, you know, touch the screen in your iPhone somehow, some way. And if you don't have your Bible today, we do have these Bibles that are in front of, in the pew. And uh, it, this particular passage, this is on page 1,820. So that's page 1,820. The book of Ephesians, the third chapter. So a little background on this book of Ephesians. Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul. And when Paul wrote this particular letter, he was, in fact, in prison. So he was in prison, and he was writing this letter, and it's known to us as Ephesians. But many people believe that this book wasn't addressed to a specific, a specific church in Ephesus, but rather a group of churches in Asia Minor. The church in Ephesus, of course, was one of the churches. But if you look at this letter compared to other letters that Paul wrote, there isn't the specific names, the specific instances, like you'd see in Philippians or First and Second Corinthians, where he literally calls out people by name in those particular texts. But this book, Ephesians, it's almost a general letter. It's almost like it was written to a group of churches who were in the same area, and Paul writes a general letter to these churches. And so this is a prayer in your Bible, it says a prayer to the Ephesians. But really, this could be a general prayer to any church that Paul is writing to. And you know, one of the main things that they were working through, one of the main conflicts uh, back during this time when Paul was writing was the inclusion of the Gentiles. Because as, as you guys know, for the longest time, the Jews thought that they were the only ones, and that was the gospel, was that Gentiles were going to be included into what God was doing on this earth and what God had plans for the next. And so here we are in this text. Paul, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul is writing about the gospel, about the inclusion of the, of the Gentiles along with the Jews. And as you guys know, there's probably some clashes. There's two distinct groups that are trying to work out their differences. And Paul is using this letter as a platform to, to talk about this and use the gospel as the unifying factor to bring these groups closer together. And so we get to Ephesians chapter 3. And the very first words in chapter 3, starting in verse 14, which is the prayer that Paul gives to this church. He begins the prayer by saying, for this reason. For this reason. So he, he is Calling back on Ephesians 1 and 2 about the inclusion of the Gentiles and, and how this is what the gospel is. And so knowing this, for this reason, for all this, I have a prayer for you. I, Paul, have a prayer for the church. As you begin to work this out, if you begin to learn how to live in unity together as distinct bodies, this is my prayer for you. And then he begins, he gives us a beautiful model of a, a way to pray. You know, in Scripture, there's different examples of prayer. Jesus, of course, is the most famous when he teaches his disciples how to pray. Does anybody know the first line to that one? Our. That's really good. <laughs> Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jesus teaches that you can see some structure and some ways to pray. And this right here is another Example of someone in Scripture teaching us how to pray by example. Because Paul here really he teaches us how to go about it. 
And then he gives us a glimpse of what we could pray for in this specific incident. So how? He begins, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Let's stop right there. Already we see a posture that Paul is coming to with prayer. Paul is coming to prayer kneeling. Kneeling. What does kneeling mean? It's a posture of humility. It's a posture of understanding that we are tapping into a resource that is bigger than us. It's bigger than we could ever imagine. In that day and age, the common way to pray was to uh, stand up and to have your head uh, slightly tilted with your eyes open. And this was the common way to pray in that day, that day and age. You know, our, our common way to pray is, is this, right? Where uh, we bow our heads and we close, you know, we bow our heads and we do this. I mean, even my little nephew who's like 20 months old, <laughs> if, you say, if you say, hey, Jacob, we're going to pray, he does this. I mean, it's almost automatic. Hey, Jacob, we're going to pray. He, he kind of knows how we do it. I think that comes from, of course, uh, parents trying to make sure their kids were not you know, distracted. I love how my kids, when they were young, used to pray because they always pray with their eyes open, uh, which I thought was beautiful imagery because we, we sometimes pray with our eyes closed, right? But when, when our kids were young around the table, we'll say, hey, you know, little Mac, do you want to pray today? And Mac would say, oh, yeah, yeah, I want to pray, Dad. And so we'd, we'd, uh, I'd bow our heads, but I'd kind of peek my eye open, and I'd see Mac with his eyes open. Dear God, thank you for the macaroni and cheese and the salad. Thank you for daddy. Thank you for mommy. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. He was, thank you for the lamp that's on the side. Thank you for the wall that's over here. He would, he would see with his eyes and that would propel him to a state of prayer. And so this is an act that Paul is doing. He doesn't stand up. What he does is he gets on his knees. And who knows if his hands were in the air, but Paul, with a state of humility, an act of understanding that we are tapping into something bigger than ourselves. That is what Paul was doing when he was kneeling. And for us, when we pray, may we learn from Paul that this is an act of humility. We are in the presence of the creator of the world. We are tapping into an energy, a force that is beyond our comprehension, beyond our control. And there is a, a, a certain sense of respect and a certain sense of admiration to this. And so Paul, he's begging, he is begging God for whatever he's going to ask next. next. And so this is, this is one of the reasons how. And so in verse 14, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So here's the, the second how. The first one is in complete humility and awe and understanding of this God that's bigger than we can ever imagine. And the second is a posture in the mind, an understanding that we are all connected Every single one of us, we are connected. We are a family, and our God is the Father. We are, in fact, we have this, the name that we have. The name we have is derived from one source. You know, names, names are unbelievable. Names are beautiful. Names are powerful because really, you know, names do two things. The first thing that a name does is it reminds us who we are. Reminds us who we are because sometimes when you forget who you are and someone says, hey, John Mark oh, Yeah, I, I really <laughs> re Reminds me who you are. It's your identity. And you know when I grew up in Thailand uh, names were very uh, They they characterized who the person was or who they looked like 
you know, for example, a common name in Thailand is Lek. Lek. Can you guys say Lek? L-E-K. Lek. Well, that in Thai means small. So, of course, that's their name, is small. Uh, where they would walk around and hit, so they usually were pretty small people. There was, uh, there was a name, Dang. D-A-N-G was a common name, Dang. Uh, and that name uh, meant red. So when they were born, apparently they were red. And so they gave them the name Dang. And then, of course, there was another name, Uan. And uh, Uan meant fat or overweight. And so, if, you know, that was also a characteristic of some people. Uh, but it was a term of endearment. It wasn't something negative. It was, it was something that described who they were or reminded them who they were. And so sometimes names serve in that purpose. It reminds us who we are. But also, here's the, the thing I love about names is it reminds us who we can be. It reminds us who, what our potential as, as humans, what we can do. For example, I think a lot of us as parents do this when we name our kids, right? We take specific, we do it intentionally, and we put names that almost lead them into a way that we hope they live. You know, for example, my son, Kellen. Kellen, raise your hand right now. <laughs> His name is Kellen, and, and the literal name to that is Mighty Warrior. And so our hope and prayer for him is that he becomes a warrior of love and peace and joy. Parker, her name is Parker, my daughter, it means park keeper, but we kind of are a little bit generous with the interpretation, the keeper of the earth, right? It leads into a case we thought it was a great name because it's the bringer of peace. There's a funny story that we were talking about this around the table one time, and we were talking about our names and reminding us who our potential is and what we can do. And uh, so we talk about Kellen, we talk about Parker, we talk about Case, we talk about Mac, my, my four kids. And then they say, Dad, what does your name mean? John, John Mark. But, uh, you know, John Mark has two names. So they started with John, and I said, man, I don't know. Take my phone and, and Google it. So one of my kids, uh, they Google, what is John on the Google? And then they start laughing <laughs> because this is what came up uh, as the first definition. Uh, and if you can't read it, it says toilet. <laughs> so here, my kids have these beautiful names, and here I was as uh, Mr. Toilet. Uh, you know, I, and I, I don't know, what, Bill, what does John mean? You, you kind of told me the other day what it meant, what it really means, right? Bringer of, keeper of God, or uh, maybe you didn't do that. You look confused. Uh, <clears throat> so collectively, we all share the same name, derived from the same source, and it goes back to Genesis. Who are we? What is our name? Well, we are, are humans. We are humans. All of us are humans. And Paul right here is beginning, he's saying when you pray, when you kneel down and begin praying this, remember, your starting point is that we are all connected. We are humans. All of us are connected. We were all we all have the same source. God breathed life into us at the very beginning. We are a family. We are part of the same team. Imagine if we began our prayers like this. If we began our prayers with this mentality, imagine what it would do to racism. Imagine what it would do to discrimination. Imagine what it would do to de dehumanization if we began every prayer with the acknowledgement that all of humanity, all of us, we are connected. Imagine what that would do for our prayer life. I mean, Jake and I are meeting with this group on uh, every month, a racial unity reconciliation, Dallas ministers that are working on racial reconciliation. And there is one uh, minister in South Dallas, African-American male, and he taught us about the Dirk Nowinski principle. 
the Dirk Nowinski principle. And here's what it is. is that he said, you know, normally, you know, if there's a boxing match or there's a sporting match, and he, he was honest. He said, if there is an African-American male and a Caucasian, I will pretty much, my default is to cheer for the African-American uh, over the Caucasian. He was admitting to us that this is kind of his tendency. He said, you know, but if they're wearing my jersey, <laughs> like Dirk Nowinski, he said, I'll cheer for Dirk Nowinski any day because he's wearing that Dallas star, that Dallas Mavericks jersey. And so this is the beginning point. When you begin with a posture that we are on the same team, we are all connected, we are all humans, and we begin our prayers with this and humility, then I think it would do a wonder to what happens with our prayers. So two things, humility and also this posture of connectedness. So then Paul prays four specific things right here. Four specific things. In verse 16, he, he prays for the first thing. So we talked about the how. Now Paul's going to talk about the what. In verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So this is a prayer, of course. This, the title of this sermon is a prayer for the Skillman Church. But this prayer could be for anything. It could be for your children who start school. It could be for your neighbor. It could be for your workplace. But the first starting point of what he is praying for is that he is praying that the Spirit of God, that, that strength and power of the Holy Spirit comes upon this group or whatever group he's writing to. So that's the first prayer. May the Spirit, may the strength and power of the Holy Spirit be a part of this community. You know, the Spirit of God, it does two things. The Spirit of God in Scripture, number one, it brings life to things that are dead. It brings life to things that are dead. And man, do we need this prayer? Sometimes the life that we live, the rat race, personally, sometimes we feel like we're dying. We're not surviving. We're just trying to keep our head above water with the craziness of life. But here Paul is praying, may the Spirit of God, the breath, the pneuma, may it enter. You know, churches, you know, I think churches can sometimes be, uh, be known to be dead, dying. You know, I think sometimes you walk into a church and you can say, man, this is, there's no life here. There's, it's, this is just a dying church. So this prayer of the Spirit is so important to churches. May this life be a part. May the Spirit put, be in all of us and may it propel us to life and being alive and to new things and energy and excitement. The second thing that the Spirit does is power. And when, when you look at the context of this, you have the Jews and you have the Gentiles and they're trying to reconcile together and it takes work. And so there needs to be a, a, a higher force bringing us into the ability to do these hard things. So the first prayer is may we pray as a church, as a community, as parents, as grandparents, may we pray for strength and power of the Holy Spirit. The second thing that Paul prays for is that Christ will dwell in their hearts. In verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 3, it says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So this is our second, the second thing that Paul prays for, that Christ will dwell in their heart. And as a community, what does Christ mean? Christ means 
Christ dwelling in the hearts means that we are a changed people, that we are different, that we are set apart, that the Christ is the Messiah, and the Christ is working within us to make us into new creations, and this is what it means that, that Christ changes us, and that is also a prayer that Paul presents to these churches in, in the book of Ephesians, and also may it be a prayer for our church as well. He continues in the second part of verse 17, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. Oh, this is beautiful. All right, get ready for this. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So here's the third prayer that Paul asked. He asked God to, to grant these people the ability to know the love of God that is unknowable. To know something that is unknowable, that is what God, what Paul is asking, that we can have a glimpse of what this love is. And Paul, the imagery is so beautiful because this love is so wide, it's so long, it's so high, and it's so deep that we can't fully understand what this love really is. But if we could just have a glimpse of it, it would make us better people. You know, I was talking to Tara this morning about this, this, this idea, but could it be that most of our failings, our sins, are, are missing the mark. Things that we do that we're not proud of or things that, that where we fall short of who we want to be, the, the sins in our life. Could it be that the very heart of all those things is the inability to grasp that we are fully loved? That we are good enough just as we are because of Christ within us? Could it be that? I mean, for example, look at lying. Why do people lie? Well, lying is trying to deceive the other person. I mean, if you were truly content, truly sure, if you were truly stable in what you thought, that, that you weren't uh, insecure, if you were secure in your thoughts, then you would tell the truth because you are secure and confident in who you are. But the reason that you lie is because you don't think, or we don't think, that we are good enough. We don't think that we are good enough as we are, and so we have to twist the truth we have to make things up so that we can appear better than we think that we are. So at the very source of this is the inability to grasp that the God's love for us. Or look at legalism, the sin of legalism. This is a deficiency that we have because we don't think that we are good enough for God's love. And so we have three things, or four things, or six things, or 17 things, or whatever things that we put together as the things that we need to do to get in God's favor. And we work tirelessly on those things because we don't think that we're good enough. Either we've sinned so much, we don't think that God would love us, or we feel like we need to work, 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 so that God will continue to love us. These are a, a deficiency of understanding the true magnitude of God's love. You know, as parents, you know, we started reading you know, the prodigal son. I've talked, about, I've talked about this before. But in that parable, it talks about these, these two, uh, this balancing act of love, because you have the, the prodigal son who goes off and does all these bad things, and he thinks that his father will not love him because of the bad things that he did. But what happens in the story? He comes back, and what does the father do? 
He runs and embraces him and welcomes him in because his love for him did not change. And then you have the older son, and the older son thought that he was doing the right things, and the fact that his father loved him because he was dependable, and he was responsible, and he showed up when he needed to show up, and he came to church on time, and he did all the right things. But at the very end of the story, his father's like, you, you were doing all that because you think that I would love you? And he says a powerful line, everything that I have is already yours. It's not about that. That love is there. And so, you know, we have begun with our kids trying to, to impart this particular truth. So at night when the kids are in bed, I've said this before, but sometimes when they're in bed and they're about to go to sleep, we say, hey, I want to tell you two things. Number one, there is nothing you could ever do to make me love you less. Nothing you could ever do to make me love you less. Like, you're going to make mistakes, and I'll be disappointed, but know this, that my love for you will never change. And they say, oh, thanks, Dad. appreciate it. And then we say, it's the second part of this, is there's nothing you could ever do to make me love you more. My love for you is so big, it's so wide, it's so expansive, that even if you get on the honor roll, I'll be proud, but my love for you doesn't change. If you make the first team or the second team in sports— I love you the same. Your accomplishments don't make me love you more. And so here we have this picture. I think you can see it in a father-son, parents-child relationship, but it's even greater when it comes to God. It's deep. It's wide. It's expansive that God's love for us is not dependent upon the things that we do, good or bad. It's there. Does God want us to be sanctified? Does God want us to make better choices? Yes, because it leads to life. But our, the love that God has for us is not dependent upon those things. Church, you are loved. You are enough. Hear this. Hear this. You are enough. Just as you are with Christ in your heart, you are enough. You don't need to lie. You don't need to make yourself appear better. Because the love that God has for you is bigger and wider than we could ever imagine. Knowing the unknowable. And finally... The fourth thing that Paul prays for to this church is that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So the prayer is that we may be filled with the fullness of God. And Alan did a fantastic job talking about the fullness of God in the communion thoughts. But this is being connected with the flow, with the divine, the fullness. Because what's the opposite of full? Empty. And this is where we feel de depraved or, or feel lost. But we are filling our life with God. And what is, what is God? In 1 John, what does it say that God is? Love. That God is love. In 1 Corinthians 13, what does Paul write about? In, in the scriptures when it says that we shall know that they are Christians by their... I can't hear you. Love. What starts with L and ends with O-V-E? The being in the fullness of God means love. This love that Jesus talks about, that Paul writes about, love where it's patient and kind. And that is who we are, being filled with this love. Four things. Four things. Number one, to pray for the strength of the Holy Spirit. Number two, to pray that Christ will dwell in our hearts. Number three, 
that, the, the, that we could somehow know the unknowable love of God. And number four, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. And this is what we can pray for with humility and with an idea that we are all connected. And so each week we offer an invitation. Every Sunday we offer an invitation here at Skillman. And the invitation today is a seven-day prayer challenge. May we as a body for the next seven days pray these four things every single day. And, you know, next week we'll meet here at the same time, same place, and talk about how it went. But if you're ready, if you're up for a challenge, take this challenge with me. Pray these four things for the church, for our church, that our church at Skillman may be filled with a spirit, that Christ may dwell in our hearts, that we may have a cognitive grasp as, as much as we can of the unknowable love of God, and then number four, that we may be filled with the, whole, the fullness of God. So pray for this church, but also pray for somebody else. Pray for your grandchild. Pray for your, your, your niece. Pray for your neighbor. Pray for your coworker. But may we dedicate these next seven days to praying these four things, just like Paul prayed for this church. May we take the seven-day challenge. Who is brave enough in this room to take the seven-day challenge. My gravois is <laughs> Nora. Who's brave enough to take the seven-day challenge? All right, all right, all right, thank you, thank you. <laughs> to pray for the people in these ways. And, and here's the cool thing about this, is that the next verse is Ephesians 3, verse 20, which everybody knows what that is, right? I mean, Troy Gibson has it memorized. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory and power forever in the church, forever in the church, forever, amen. So that's the beautiful thing about prayer is that when we are connected to this divine, this higher being, and we pray for God to work amazing things, who knows what can happen? It's more than we could ever ask or imagine. And if we as a church were filled with the Spirit, if we as a church had Christ in our hearts, if we as a church were able to somehow, some way know the unknowable love of, of, of God, and if we also had the fullness of God within us, oh my goodness, God will do great things. We are now, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song. And as we always do, uh, we will have the elders on the side that if you need prayers, they will be there. I'll be up front. Also, if you have any questions at all about being baptized, anything at all about wanting to know about how to be a, a follower of Christ, I'm also up here to talk to you here and now. But why don't we come together and sing together? <laughs>